Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I am a writer and film critic. And today I'm going to be talking to Clark Collis, the author of You've Got Red on You, How Shaun of the Dead Was Brought to Life. Clark has been a writer and is, is a writer for Entertainment Weekly. And his book is a deep dive into the making of one of the best Zomcoms ever made. In fact, probably one of the inaugural uh, movies in that genre, a low-budget film which propelled many of its stars and it, certainly its director into international fame, Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, and of course the director Edgar Wright, who has a new film out at the moment, or I'm not sure how new it is uh, exactly, but uh, uh, Last Night in Soho, which is uh, I think currently in cinemas. Uh, and might even be available for streaming. If you enjoy our conversation, please remember to like, send reviews. I've noticed on Apple we've got 14 reviews, uh, five-star reviews as well, so very, very good. And the more of those, the better. The more we get, the more the podcast will appear and will be shared by other people and be liked and listened to by other people, and that's all all to the good. You can follow me on Twitter at DrJonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation
my first experience was uh, seeing it at the AMC Cinema in Union Square in New York. Uh, I moved to New York in 2002. Really loved it. I'd lived in London for quite a while. New York's very much a sort of London-y town, really, with the tube and the sort of, I guess, you know, bar culture. But still, I did miss uh, London. And I loved horror movies and zombie movies. So frankly, if someone's going to make a zombie movie about a bunch of Londoners holed up in a pub battling the undead, then I'm definitely going to go and see it. I wish I could remember the actual experience better. I wish I could tell you that I sat there saying, oh, this is an amazing film. And in, you know, 17 years time, I will write a book about it. I certainly enjoyed it. Uh, but actually, I had quite a history with, or some history with the director uh, and co-writer Edgar Wright. I had grown up in Wells in Somerset, which uh, is a, it's technically a cathedral town mm. or cathedral city because it's got a whopping great cathedral in it, but it doesn't really have much else, to be honest with you. It's in rural Somerset, lovely part of the country, but lovely part of the world, but not always the most exciting place to be. People familiar with Edgar Wright's, the film that he made after Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, uh, will be familiar with Wells because that's where he shot all the exteriors. I grew up in Wells. Edgar grew up in Wells. Uh, I didn't know him. He's a few years younger than me. But when he started sort of making things, directing things, he was certainly someone I always kept an eye on. Um, I was editing, I was deputy editor of a film magazine called Neon in the mid-90s. And we got word, probably via fax would be my guess, uh, that there was this kid, this 20-year-old kid who'd made a comedy western called A Fistful of Fingers in Wells, Somerset, which obviously sort of attracted my attention. And I sent one of my colleagues off to interview Edgar about that. And then Edgar, Fistful of Fingers was not a huge success. Uh, it played for one week at the Prince Charles Cinema. Uh, in London. So, you know, a bigger success than than a lot of other films. But I think Edgar was, well, I mean, he, as he told me, he was hoping that it would be kind of, you know, his evil dead uh, really put him on the map. And that did not uh, come to pass. And so he sort of disappeared a little bit into the world of directing television. He did like the French and Saunders Christmas special one year and, and did a, a season of Bill Bailey's show. Uh, and then together with uh, Simon Pegg and Jessica Hines made Spaced. And, you know, Spaced was this sort of fantastic, groundbreaking, very, I don't want to use the word zeitgeisty because that's not a word. And it's, even if it was, it isn't one I would necessarily want to use, but it certainly captured something. You know, if you were, a, you know, certainly if like me, if you were a London dwelling, uh, you know, 20 something, you know, trying to do something creative in London in the 90s, then, then Space really spoke to you. It certainly did to me. And then, yeah, and the next his next major project was Shaun of the Dead, which I saw in New York. And really, I mean, I certainly enjoyed it. But I think, you know, very intelligent is the man who or woman who can who can sort of recognize all the things that are going on in an Edgar Wright movie immediately. I'm sure it's a film I watched, you know, a few more times and, and caught like a lot more things. And then, you know, he made Hot Fuzz and then he made The World's End, this sort of accidental trilogy uh, known as, as the Three Colors Cornetto trilogy because they all, uh, they all feature Cornetto uh, in them. And I think that's when, you know, certainly around the time of Hot Fuzz, I mean, Hot Fuzz blew me away because it was set in Wells anyway, but, you know, you start to think, wow, these guys are really good. And this is a, you know, this is a great pair of films with, with Sean and Hot Fuzz and, and they're doing something 
you know, very original. I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting because in some ways it's very unoriginal. I mean, as they would, I mean, not that it's unoriginal, but they're certainly, you know, referencing films that have gone before. But the, the way they, the way they, you know, make these films is incredibly original. They seem incredibly original. And then with The World's End, this the last film in the trilogy, I was just like, wow, this is, uh, you know, this is absolutely amazing. And and they, I mean, I really do think it's it's one of the best. I mean, it's certainly my favorite film trilogy, uh, which is remarkable given sort of how accidentally it, it came together. And so, yeah, over time, I've just fallen more and more in love with these films. And it's interesting because I do think which, whichever one is my favorite happens to be the one... It, Whichever one I've seen most recently is my favorite. I mean, I would, throughout writing the book, throughout writing the book, which is called, uh which is called You Got Red On You, I would have said Shaun of the Dead was my favorite. But the other day I was, I had, I I, I, I had cause to watch Hot Fuzz because I was talking about that to somebody. And I was like, my God, this is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. And I've always been a fan of, of The World's End and sort of, I think it's many people's uh, maybe least favorite of the Cornetto movies, but I love it. I particularly love the the end when, um, well, spoiler alert, but it has a pretty, has a pretty apocalyptic conclusion. Well, uh, it's in the title. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, it is in the title. Yeah, so I just thought, you know, what an amazing... So the answer is that I can't specifically remember... <laughs> I can't specifically remember seeing much about seeing Shaun of the Dead, but I, but I probably because I went and had a few drinks immediately after seeing it. But you know, it was I was certainly aware of Edgar's work before, and really fell in love with Edgar's work in the Edgar and Simon and Nick, and their producer Naira Park or Edgar's producer Naira Park, and you just fell in love with all the stuff they did, you know, in the years afterwards. What was Fistful of Fingers like? Because I've never seen that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean. It's uh, it's it's interesting. It's it is of interest. I would I would say. I mean, I know that Edgar he doesn't like to talk badly about the film because a lot of people put a lot of effort into it, you know. And he's not someone to be like. I mean, he's someone who's always very upbeat about his work, not out of a sense of egomania, but 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 you know, he's certainly not. You know, he's not ashamed of it. But I will say that it was, I mean, this is mentioned in the in the book, but. When he was promoting Shaun of the Dead, people would often say, refer to it as Edgar's debut movie, Edgar's first movie. And he would not necessarily dissuade them of, you know, he would not point out the mistake that they'd made. I mean, I would, I think the word, I think the word would be underfinanced was one word that comes to mind with, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's, you know, a bunch of 20 year olds running around Wells in Somerset, uh, making a comedy Western with no money and no experience and they're not really even actors and so and so and it kind of looks like that I will say there are some jokes I watched it I hadn't seen it but I watched it when I was writing the book and there are definitely times when you can see that this guy would go on to do better things I think it's I think it's fair to say but there seems to be a kind of aspect of it that that in terms of how you describe the making of it that runs into Shaun of the Dead as well that sort of improvisation in the sense of using friends to come along and help out and you know the way he prepares Shaun of the Dead in terms of storyboarding it very in, in a lot of detail I mean I, I guess that's against the idea of improvisation actually but but you know what I mean there's a sort of do-it-yourself aspect to it I think maybe would be a better a better way of looking. Yeah, it's I've thought about this a lot. It's it's strange because there is it is it is there is an aspect to it that is very much DIY. I mean, si- I mean Simon and Edgar wrote Shaun of the Dead together and really had no I don't think Simon had ever written a screenplay. Edgar had written 
the screenplay for A Fistful of Fingers. You know, they've got no, you know, and they're not, and Simon never really starred in a film. Edgar had never really directed a film. Edgar and Simon were friends. Uh, they insisted against many people's objections to cast Nick Frost <laughs> in, you know, the second male lead role. At that point, Nick had, appe- I mean, Nick had appeared in space, uh, but the only re- the reason they got Nick in space partly was because Simon wanted Simon was living with Nick at the time and wanted to hang out with his friend more. Plus that, you know, Simon thought he was the funniest person on the planet. But I mean, you know, lots of people think their best friends are funniest people on the planet. Now, admittedly, Simon Pegg's a stand-up comedian, so he has a better, uh, you know, more reliable opinion than most on on what's funny. But yeah, they they you know they 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 got Nick on board. Working Title did not want Nick Frost to appear in the film, and he's absolutely brilliant in it. And there's definitely they. I mean, all the zombies in the film were fans of space, basically, or friends of Edgar and Simon's who were paid a day, a pound a day to appear in it. And, you know, a lot of the people, a lot of the department heads that worked on space were, were, were young, relatively, in, uh, sorry, on Shaun of the Dead, were re- young, relatively inexperienced people um, who'd worked with them on space. And it's, so it's true, there is like a DIY aspect to it. But also, you know, I think Edgar's very good, Edgar and Nair and, and Simon are very good at like picking talent. You know what I mean? Mm, they they yeah. had a choice of people to work with on Spaced. And it's not a coincidence that again and again, they chose people who would do a great job on Spaced and then would do a great job on uh, Shaun of the Dead. And then, I mean, I mean, the, the makeup artist on both Spaced and Shaun of the Dead is this lady called Jane Walker, who would go on, you know, to work on so... I mean, she, she, was, actually, she was actually quite established at the time. But, you know, I can't imagine she was, I mean, you know, they, they definitely picked her and I suppose they paid her much money. And she would go on to do like one blockbuster movie or show after another and became the makeup, the, the sort of head makeup designer on Game of Thrones and won so many Emmys for Game of Thrones that it was the one thing, one of the few things, well, I guess you could say a lot, a lot of things would be on me in writing this book. But definitely one of the few things that was beyond me was trying to work out how many Emmys Jane Walker actually won for Game of Thrones. <laughs> there were so many. So yeah, it is, there is definitely a sort of garden shed aspect to all this, not least because the garden shed features in Shaun of the Dead. But it's also that they're really talented people. You know, it's not just a sort of, it's not just they got lucky. I mean, I mean, Ed, you know, Edgar is picking these people and uh, one of the, I think it was the assistant director told me, certainly somebody high up in the crew told me that his job interview for Shaun of the Dead, um, he, you know, he, he arranged to meet Edgar and thought it was going to be like a 20 minute chat uh, in a coffee shop or whatever. You know, met Edgar and then Edgar produced like a foot high stack of storyboards and was still going through them like two hours later when the, the guy who got the job had to call his, his partner or whatever and say he'd be late for dinner. So, you know, it's, it's, and I think this is one of the reasons that Edgar wanted, you know, I mean, Edgar, I, I interviewed Edgar on many, many occasions for the book, and I'd spoken to him about Shaun of the Dead, you know, a lot over the years. I think he thought, quite rightly, that a lot of people would look at space to be like, oh, well, you know, they got to make space, and then someone gave them the money to make Shaun of the Dead, and... Uh, that must have been pretty easy. And then because it's a bit space-like, presumably making Shaun of the Dead would have been pretty easy because they kind of done it before. And I think Edgar wanted to slightly put the record straight and point out that, you know, nobody wanted to give them the money for Shaun of the Dead. It was a arduous two-year process, you know, dragging this thing up a hill. 
Um, and then making the film was very, very hard. And then promoting the film, I think, was less hard. They, they, I mean, they promoted the film in a lot of ways, but Simon and Nick and Edgar went off on like a sort of month-long tour of America as if they were you know an indie rock band essentially which i'm guessing was quite enjoyable but still it's a lot of you know it's a lot of time and labor and and uh and the funny thing was one of the last interviews i did was with Zack snyder director of you know dawn of the dead uh well many other films but dawn of the dead was being produced by universal at the same time that they were financing Shaun of the dead and so i was interviewing Zack snyder about army of the dead which was his latest zombie film and i said did you ever see Shaun of the dead and he said yeah you know the thing about Shaun of the Dead is you can just tell like what a laugh they had making that film. I don't mean he's American, so this because he said what a laugh, but how much fun it was making that film. And I almost said, well, I've got a 400 page book. <laughs> that <laughs> that argues otherwise. Well, that contradicts that, yeah. And certainly some people, I mean, I think everybody has fond memories of making the film. A lot of people did have a good time uh, while making the film. Some of the zombies maybe had too good a time uh, making the film, but you know, Edgar, you know, certainly remembers it as being, you know, very, you know, uh, uh, a lot of hard work from, from one end to another. Yeah, I think I I was definitely one of those people who who loved Space and saw Shaun of the Dead and watched Edgar Wright's subsequent career and kind of think, oh, well, he was he was on that trajectory forever. That was definitely that was like a, 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 a you know, a, a thing that was, was in the stars. It was and then reading your book, it's like, wow, that that mm. there were plenty of knockbacks. There were plenty of moments where it could have just disappeared if the right person hadn't said yes at the right time. And and it's interesting as well to read about how Simon Pegg, for instance, talks about how dark he was feeling at the time right. when they were trying to get the money. No, absolutely. And both Simon and... and I mean, Simon, I, I should say that I mean, Simon and Nick have both written uh, autobiographies, which, while, I mean, the book has a lot of fresh quotes from them, you know, I mean, my, I did rely, you know... To some extent, on on their on their memoirs, and Nick in particular is is highlighted the depression that he felt uh, often growing up and and as a young adult. Um, Simon less so, but yeah, I think because Simon was, I mean, Simon, as he's spoken about subsequently, had a problem with alcohol, and this was something that was kind of getting worse in the course of making Shaun of the Dead. And Edgar, you know, always went out of his way while talking to me to say that when. Simon was, you know, that Simon was around 98% of the time and when he was around, it was amazing, both as a, as a writer and, you know, uh, in, in all ways, really, a creative partner. But sometimes he would just go absent. They would, they would have like a meeting set up, at, you know, at, to get finance at, at one of the big production companies and Simon would call, you know, an hour before and say that he wasn't coming, which, you know, and I think part of it was that Simon... You know, like a lot of artists, like a lot of all of us, you know, doesn't always have the highest opinion of himself, I guess. Sorry, I'm a bit wary of kind of, you know, psychoanalyzing or, you know, speaking for Simon. Sure. But, you know, he's the he's the front man for this film and he's got to get up every morning and be the front man for this film. And, 
you know, is in the process of trying to convince, you know, people to give them money for a film that, of which he is going to be the star. And I think there are times when it just, you know, and, and, and you're getting, you know, you're getting rejection after rejection after rejection. And there are times when, you know, he decided that, that he would rather spend the afternoon in the pub than, than, you know, being told by essentially somebody else or doing a dog and pony show for somebody else who was not going to ultimately give them any money. And it's striking, though, how when they actually, the cameras start to roll, he's like, oh, I'm in my happy place now. And he enjoys it much yeah. more than, than than Edgar does. Then Edgar goes into, into the dark yeah. places. Yeah, absolutely. They, they, they talk about, I mean, I mean, talking to all of the people that played zombies and everybody really, just how Simon and Nick were kind of the front of house of the production. But Edgar was always off. I mean, Edgar was, would be pleasant, but was off you know, quote unquote, stealing shots during lunchtime that, that he felt he needed in the editing room. And that it was Simon and Nick who, you know, would, would engage with the extras and just sort of keep morale up. And 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 I I, uh, I would think it was the continuity, uh, the script editor rather, who said that, that she would just listen to them in between uh, shots because they would do the shot. They would be in the car or whatever, and it would be Edgar and Simon and Bill Nye and... Kate Ashfield and Lucy Davis and Dylan Moran. But the between she, she the, the script supervisor was like, well, everyone would just keep listening because Simon and Nick would be as funny when the cameras weren't rolling, as, you know, as, as they were when, when the cameras were rolling. And it was like just getting this sort of like free comedy show in between in between shots. So yeah, I think I think during the actual process, I think you're absolutely right that that in the actual process, Simon did have a better time than than uh you know, than Edgar. But the other thing is Edgar's got to, I mean, Edgar's extremely talented, without a doubt. You know, I mean, I'm not saying anything new there. But part of his talent, or rather, the other thing he has, which means that his talent ultimately, you know, he can ultimately get this stuff on screen, is that he is on this, like, I don't know, 22 hours a day during during shooting. He is like, you know, there's there's a hundred ways that things cannot work out in the way that that he imagined them working out and he's the person and obviously with help but he is the person that has to make sure that everything happens essentially and i think had he not so he, he's incredibly talented but then he's also incredibly on it and and right. and you need you need and even though that's a sort of in some ways boring not boring but that's you know people talk about skill all the time but you've still got to be you still got to be the person. You still got to be the person who makes sure that that the things that you imagine end up end up on screen, especially when you've got like no money, essentially, which is what they had. And and I mean, part of the the sort of extra pressure on him is uh, he had a pretty rapidly deteriorating relationship with his DP, who was an American, quite experienced American cinematographer. Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, David Dunlap was, you know, a really someone who had been like a fantastic cameraman, uh, long history of you know, of credits, cameraman, and then, you know, sort of risen through the ranks and eventually become uh, quite recently a cinematographer. And he had worked on, I mean, the reason Edgar, one of the reasons Edgar uh, hired him was because he had worked on like Goodfellas and the Royal Tannenbaums and Raising Arizona, which are like three of Edgar's favorite movies, particularly particularly Goodfellas and and, and Raising Arizona, which, who, you know, which came out when Edgar was just sort of, starting to really, you know, seriously think about films and, and, and what could be done 
uh, on the screen. So it seemed like it was going to be a very happy marriage, but things did, yeah, you're right, things did deteriorate. And I think it was it was kind of a clash of cultures, basically, that 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 I mean, again, I'm loath to go into this. I don't mean I don't mean to be like you should buy if you want to find out more about this, buy my book. But but one of the things I I kind of one of the things that really exercised me about the book was I wanted to, as far as possible, portray both sides of this argument. Um, particularly, you know, I wanted to find people who could sort of, you know, who could say how great, you know, how much of a contribution David Dunlap made to the movie, which indeed Edgar himself would say that, that the, for the most part, the stuff that, that David captured, you know, was was absolutely amazing. But there was definitely a clash of of attitudes. And I think it boiled down to the fact that David, you know, was used to working on these big, big projects. And that here was a film that was very low budget. There was a horror movie, you know, which 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 is still, and even today, is still regarded as, you know, in many ways, a lesser genre to, you know, some of the other genres. And you had a director, you had a young director, essentially making his first film, who, you know, found it hard to explain. It wasn't that he found it hard to explain what he wanted, but the way, if you ever seen an Edgar Wright movie then, you know, you can imagine how many shots he, and how much coverage he wants in order to, uh, you know, put the film together. And I'm guessing that there were, and you know, he's, I mean, Shaun of the Dead, you know, he, he I'm not gonna say Edgar invented a, a style of filmmaking, but he certainly, you know, advanced the style of filmmaking that had been kind of created in a way by Sam Raimi and other, you know, directors in the eighties and, you know, I, I think, I don't think, you know, essentially it boiled down to the fact that, that most of the people working on Shaun of the Dead, I wouldn't say they'd be happy to work 24 hours a day, but were kind of prepared to do that. And uh, the camera department wasn't always prepared to do that. Yeah, I think you I think you presented it in a very even-handed way. I mean, I actually, there's a bit where he says, look, I need to rest. I'm carrying the camera. I'm right. uh, I'm doing the work. And uh, when it's lunch hour, I'm going to have lunch, you know. It's... Uh, right professional you know and I, I thought it was a really good bit where he talks about dps who who are warning him off you uh you know working with a sort of first-time filmmaker again you know with a caveat that's not exactly yeah. his first film because you know yeah they're willing to you know absolutely break everybody's necks to get the perfection that they need and then they go off with a million dollar check and you're yeah. left going to the next job you know no i think that's absolutely right edgar i mean the iron not the irony but the, but 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 when I put that point to Edgar, he pointed out quite rightly that in his case, he has continued to work with, with or did continue to work with many of the heads of department. I mean, basically many of the people that worked with him on Shaun of the Dead carried on working with him on, you know, bigger, uh, more successful, and I'm guessing, you know, often more lucrative films. I mean, lucrative in the sense of being paid. And the, But David was the was the one person that he, you know, did not work with again. Although I have to say, there is a sort of they did. They, I mean, David Dunlap appeared. You know, came to a screening of Shaun of the Dead when they're on the promotional tour, and Edgar talks about going out for a drink with him, and it was all like as if nothing had happened, which is which is quite nice. And I mean, David Dunlap, when I interviewed him a couple of times, just seemed like a delightful guy, you know, right. and 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 it's just like a sort of clash of cultures, and it's one of those things that that that. You know, because David, it turns out, is sort of on the wrong side of history with this, then it's easy to kind of point a finger at him. But, you know, there's a, there's another world where, you know, I mean, 
you know, say it's another story, you know, a different film where the, the DP is refusing to, you know, is coerced into working long hours and then something terrible happens and, you know, and the film never comes out or is terrible or, or whatever, you know. I mean, there are various ways that this can go. It's just unfortunate for David, as I said, that Edgar Wright went on to be like Edgar Wright. So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's sort of, that's proven correct in, in some ways. But there's, I mean, you've read the book, so you know, but there is a weird caveat to this, that, or there is a weird epilogue to this, that David went on to be an Emmy-winning, the, the Emmy-winning cinematographer on uh, uh, House of Cards. House of Cards or House of Games? I always get confused. It's, it's House of, the, the House of Cards, right? It's House of Cards. I always get confused with it because there's a movie called House of Games. Yeah, House of Games is a David Mamet movie, isn't that's it? That's right, that's yeah. right. I just, I always get confused. So, you know, it's a happy ending for David Dunlap. He goes, I mean, it was a basic, I mean, he has this incredible career. Then, you know, joins the team of uh, House of Cards, wins an Emmy. Um, but then Edgar is shooting Baby Driver, which stars you know, amongst other people, Kevin Spacey, and needs to do, you know, the, the main shoot is over, and then he realizes he needs one or two months of Kevin Spacey. But Kevin Spacey is shooting House of Cards at this point, and he, so he has to go to the set of House of Cards to get this shot of Kevin Spacey and, you know, see David Dunlap again. Although, again, Edgar was said, you know, it was quite amicable and, and uh, you know, and so on and so forth. What about that? I, I, I was when I was reading this, I was also thinking about you mentioned at one point comic strip the the sort of Pete Richardson. Is it Peter Richardson? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. uh, Rick Rick Mail's uh, alternative mm -hmm. comedy sort of group, and it, it let, and also thinking about the French and Saunders special that Edgar directs. There's a real um, strong. Uh, legacy and tradition of parody in in British comedy and more specifically British television. And I I often think of I I, I sort of it made me think that Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and the the trilogy sort of really lock into that sort of that tradition. Perhaps more so than America. I know, I know in America you got sort of Mel Brooks and all the scary movies, but uh, yeah, there is. I mean, it is interesting that that. Uh, Naira Park, uh, Edgar's producer, who you could describe as the fifth Beatle of this operation, except I think really she's the fourth Beatle. You know, her first job was working for the comic strip. She was obsessed with the show. I think she said she cancelled a holiday or came back early from a holiday, you know, when she was growing up to, to or as a teenager to see, to see an episode and started off literally cleaning out Peter Richardson's garage, I think was her first job on the show. Uh, and then ultimately became the producer. Um, and then Simon Pegg is in the movie that Rick Mail and Aid Edmondson did, whose name escapes me, Hotel. It was like a riff on Hotel Paradiso. I can't quite remember the name of the film. Um, so there are definitely connections. But I, I don't know. I feel like if Edgar and Simon were here, they would want me to point out that they do not regard Shaun of the Dead as a parody of uh, the zombie film, of the zombie genre. Simon's always keen on pointing out that uh, they didn't set out to parody the zombie film. They set out to make a zombie film. What they set out to parody was was the sort of Richard Curtis penned London set, uh, you know, romantic comedy of Four Weddings and a Funeral and Notting Hill and so on and so forth. And one of the pitches that they would, one of the sort of, you know, one sentence pitches that they would they would give to financiers, usually unsuccessfully, was Richard Curtis shot in the head. So, uh, and, and that the comedy, I mean, they were not unaware of the comedic potential of zombies, but that the comedy became, the comedy was this jarring, um, in a good way, you know, the jarring way in which the zombie film kind of rubbed up against both 
the Richard Curtis movie, and also kind of the Mike Lee movie. I think one of their other pictures was Life is Sweet with Zombies, Life is Sweet being a being a Mike Lee movie. So I don't know. I mean, they were definitely, but I think it's almost more like the goodies. I mean, most mm. most people listening to this might want to ask their fathers or, or their parents or grandparents about the goodies. But I think it, that maybe was more of a was more of an influence or or uh, the young ones. I mean, I know the young ones is kind of comic strip adjacent anyway, but I think maybe that was more of an, in, in, more of an influence on them. I suppose there's an embarrassment of riches when you're looking at a uh, British comedy from the eighties, nineties and, and on. What about zombies themselves? Cause there, there's, there's a very, there's a very clear idea that they love zombie movies and the, you know, there's many moments in the book where people who are involved in the making of the film sort of bond over a mutual love of zombies. For the most part, there are some people who, who say, you know, I, I didn't <laughs> don't understand zombies. What was your, what's your personal relationship with zombies with the walking dead, so to speak? I just loved them. I mean, I've always been a horror fan. I went to see, for some deranged reason, my father took me to see the 70s version of The Island of Dr. Moreau with Michael York and Burt Lancaster. Burt Lancaster, yes. At the, I can remember this clear as day, at the Midsummer Norton Palladium in Midsummer Norton, uh, which is about uh, 12 miles east of Wells. And I can just remember being terrified by it. And there was one point where I said to my dad, this is freaking, you know, this is frightening me. I've got to, we sh- can we go? And he said, we can go, but we're leaving. Like, like if we go, then we're going home. We're not going to hang around in the auditorium, in the foyer, waiting for it to get less scary. So I stuck around and, you know, I often think if I left, maybe I'd be like the prime minister at this point, because I would have become interested in other things. I think the chances uh, of me being the prime minister are pretty slim, but I'm not sure, but, man. I think, I, think, I think you're probably overqualified at the moment. The, the, the thought does, the thought does occur to me. But no, that really set me on my path. And certainly zombies were just something that fascinated me. I saw, I was somewhat late to it. I saw George Romero's Day of the Dead when I was 18. And it just blew me away. I'd never seen anything like it. And it really did uh, haunt my dreams. Day of the Dead is my favourite as well. Day of the Dead is d- definitely my favourite. And I'm not sure why it always seems to come third place. To, to I mean, I know Dawn of the Dead has the sort of political satire of commercialism and stuff. But Day of the Dead always struck me as the most terrifying. I agree. And the effects are amazing. I'm a big, big fan of Day of the Dead. It's probably the one that I would you know put on. Um, out of the three. Also, talking about The Walking Dead, Greg Nicotero plays a kind of stoner soldier at the start, which is always fun, and then uh, gets his head removed. This is just something I tried to impart in the book, and I think Edgar, well, everybody tried to sort of impart, was that it is impossible to describe to young people today how damn hard it was trying to find these things. You know, like, like yes, Day of the Dead would have been re- released on video, but if you were trying to find other zombie movies, of which there weren't many anyway, then it was really, really difficult. And Edgar talks in the book, talks about wanting to see Night of the Living Dead. His parents didn't have a video recorder. His parents weren't that well off. And so, you know, he had to wait for it to be screened on, you know, where he lives uh, at like 2 o'clock in the morning. The next day, having stayed up till 5 o'clock watching a you know, watching Night of the Living Dead. It was really hard to find these things. That was part of the appeal. I think also, I mean, the horror genre, as I said, was was not that well regarded in the, in the 80s. And the zombie genre was kind of, I don't know, just like the least sexy genre, both in terms of like literally not being sexy and... And in terms of like hipness, I guess it was it was really for the hardcore uh, horror geeks. It's sort of like no fun. I mean, even though it is quite fun, 
I think it was perceived as sort of, you know, no fun. And for, for the walk, and so just, you know, 30 years on or whatever, to witness The Walking Dead become the most successful, you know, TV show in the world really did kind of blow my mind. But that, yeah, that was my relationship with, with, with zombies. And, and it was kind of Edgar and Simon's relationship with zombies. And, and the last, I mean, before 28 Days Later and Shaun of the Dead, the last sort of like gasp of the zombie film had been Day of the Dead which was released the same year as Night of the Living Dead. So you had like, which, uh, sorry, as Return of the Living Dead, which is a more comedic approach. But it's also a really great movie. But then it just sort of, you know, people stopped making them. And Edgar and Simon thought, you know, one of the aces they had up their sleeve was that no one had made a zombie film in 15 years. And that people, you know, so it was like fallow earth. And A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Then Edgar tells a very funny story about, you know, they were writing the film, essentially. And Simon came in and said, uh, uh, do you know Danny Boyle's making a zombie film? <laughs> and Edgar, <laughs> and this being 28 days later, and Edgar recalling just smashing his head uh, into the desk for half an hour because this being so annoyed that, that the wind had sort of been taken out of their sails by by 28 days later. That's such a horrible, yeah. I, I, I've, I've been on a couple of uh, creative endeavours which have been sort of gazumped by, yeah. uh, by something else turning up. Most recently, a, a Gerard Butler film called Greenland, which shared sure. a title of something I was working on. And it's like, oh, God yeah. damn it. You, well, know? you can always change that. It's not, to be fair, it's not that great a title. I mean, no offense to Gerard Butler or you, but you know. it, no, it is in mine. That's the thing. It's kind of really central to the concept. So it's like, it's, it, you know, ah, I can't call it Iceland. It, it, it would be, you know, mum's gone to Iceland then. Well, funny <laughs> enough, I don't know, but this just this year, there have been two sort of low budget acclaimed movies, both called Swan Song. Uh, one right. of them with, with um, oh, who's the, uh, who's the horror legend that's in the, that's in the first uh, Swan Song that's in, um, that's in, he's in Suspiria and Udo Kia. Udo Kia. Yes, the great Udo Kia, who I interviewed for Swan Song. So I really should remember it. To be honest, the, 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 I found the pandemic has not done much for my not great, you know, instant recall anyway. <laughs> but yeah, so Udo Kia is in this movie Swan Song, which was released in the summer. And then Mahershala Ali is in this other movie called Swan Song. And you're like, well, it's not, why don't you change the title? It's not like, I mean, frankly, Swan Song could be like you could name half the movies ever made Swan Song, really. And it's not like, I don't know, it's just for some reason it really infuriates me that, that, there's, that there's two movies called that. 
But funny, I mean, Shaun of the Dead was not, I think they originally pitched it as Tea Time of the Dead. I mean, the fact that it's called Shaun of the Dead was one of the reasons why they, they not a huge reason perhaps, it was certainly one of the reasons why they had, they had getting finance because it's kind of a crappy pun. And nowadays, mm-hmm. Shaun of the Dead, it's, I mean, the thing is, it's like the Beatles. So the Beatles, it's a crappy pun, which I'm sure when they started, some people must have been like, sure, the Beatles. But of course, you just don't even you just don't even register what it means anymore, you know. And you know, and I think that's what's happened with Shaun of the Dead. But but um, uh, Edgar told me that they you know they'd written the script or were writing the script, and Edgar met Ricky Gervais uh, in London, just on the street, and they went and had a drink. And I think Ricky was a, just about the first season of The Office was about to come out, and Ricky had appeared briefly in Space. So Ricky said, what have you been working on? And Edgar said, well, we got, you know, Simon and I have been running this zombie comedy called Shaun of the Dead. And Ricky Gervais said, nah, but what's it really called? Because he couldn't <laughs> believe that anybody would. And I, I distinctly remember thinking, you know, when I found out that there was a movie called Shaun of the Dead, that with a title like that, it really can't, you know, how good can it be? Um, which, you know, shows me, obviously. But in many ways, it's sort of like the broadest joke in the whole film and maybe not the best joke in the whole film. Of course, now it doesn't matter. What does it matter? You know, people, you know, people love the film. It's like a placeholder that then yes. becomes like the, that's it. That's, that's the title in the end. Yeah, but, you know, turns out I was completely wrong. <laughs> As I am about so many things. Oh, aren't we all? Aren't we all? Um, what about, uh, you, so how did you sort of come about writing the book then? What was your sort of journey towards towards that what was the I had so I had interviewed I I did the first time I really interviewed all of them or any of them I think was around Hot Fuzz I I sat down and um I I, Hot Fuzz came out in America quite a while after after it did in Britain and it was a huge huge success in Britain as, as you may well recall just like you know like as if it was Titanic or whatever I pitched doing a piece on them Edgar and Simon and Nick to Entertainment Weekly so I interviewed them then and then over the years, had interviewed them about, you know, uh, The World's End and sort of individual projects they did. I visited the set of uh, Scott Pilgrim in, in Toronto when Edgar was directing that. So I'd gotten on, pro- I would not say I was, you know, friends with them, but they'd know who I was. And then about four years ago, we did a house. So I work for Entertainment Weekly magazine in America. I'm a senior writer. I've, I've been working there for 15 years or so. And one, uh, we did a Halloween issue of Entertainment Weekly. Uh, I was asked, to, I, did, I did an oral history of Short of the Dead. And I you know, re-interviewed uh, Edgar and Simon and Nick and Kate Ashfield, who plays Liz, and Naira, who reluctantly got on the phone. And I was not one to really pop her head above. She's, you know, a fantastic producer and great person, but is not one to volunteer to to sort of get in the spotlight, really. And I interviewed Bill Nye about something else around the same time and shot him a couple of questions about Shaun of the Dead. So what is that, like five people, six people? The oral history was probably about 1,500 words. Came together quite well. And I was like, uh, oh, well, that seemed all right. And then I was just, I've always been keen. Uh, I've always wanted to write a book and I've always very much enjoyed books about films i don't know whether how much you wanted me to talk about this but like going back to stephen back's book the the final cut which is about the making which is really possibly the i think it is the best book about making a movie stephen back was a producer on heaven's gate and so he wrote a book about the making of michael cimino's heaven's gate and the sort of unmaking of of united artists 
And he was like, I mean, the great thing is he had total access. He was the access, you know, right, it wasn't right. like he was, you know, best friends with the producer. He was the producer, essentially, one of the executives. And also he's really, you know, I, I thought he was a really good writer. So I'd loved that book. And I'd loved books about films in, in you know, in general over the years. Uh, uh, the book about Bonfire of the Vanities, The Devil's Candy, which is great. Which was recently turned into a, a fantastic podcast. I, I just had her on the uh, on the podcast. She was uh, she, a couple of episodes back. Oh, great! That, I thought that was amazing. I thought that was absolutely amazing. And a lesson, you know, keep your tapes. Always keep your interview tapes <laughs> because I mean, the fantastic thing about that, I mean, it's a great book. But but she had, you know, she just kept the tape running all the time, um, and people knew that that's what she was doing. And then. You know, for for her to be able to to describe meetings and then you you know you hear the tape of the meeting is is quite extraordinary. So I'd always be interested in it. I had I had done the oral history of Shaun of the Dead. I felt I mean they are a story. Edgar and Simon and Nick are a story, in as much as you know they're friends who made a movie, and that movie is partly about their friendship. So you know it's not like you know it's not like people are sitting around going. All right, we're going to make a movie about Thor. What's the, what's that going to be about? Like, like it's. I mean, no offense to people who make movies about Thor. I love a lot of those films, you know. But this is just an extraordinary situation where you had people, you know. I mean, Simon Pegg and, and Nick Frost play flatmates, roommates, and they were flatmates, which is extraordinary. And at the time, I think, or maybe you know, they just stopped being. I think they were still flatmates at the time. You know, it's crazy, really. And also, you know, I had, I, I felt that I was, I felt as growing up in Wells, roughly at the same time as Edgar, I had a good handle on being able to describe, you know, that what that was like, and the sense of Hollywood being a long, long, the sense of Bristol being a long, long way away from from where you're growing up, and it's only like twenty miles down the road. Um, so, you know, Hollywood being, Hollywood just seemed like, you know, uh, un unreachable. Yeah, so I thought, huh, okay, um, well, maybe I've got the, the bones of a book here and I've interviewed five people. And I mean, how many people am I going to be interviewing here? Like, I don't know, like 15 or whatever. And I'll, I wouldn't, I wasn't like, I'll knock it out. But I was like, oh, it'll be a nice breezy book about how these people made a movie and had a lovely time. And it'll, I'll interview like 15 people and it'll be like, 170 pages that seems not unreasonable for a you know for a book about Shaun of the Dead I thought and then as you know I've been talking about I started talking to Edgar and he was like uh I would really like to talk about how hard this was <laughs> and so you kind of think well there's more of a there's more of a story here and the other thing is that Edgar's very Edgar is someone who likes to justify, you know, with good reason, likes to credit his collaborators. So he's like, oh, you really should speak to this person or that person. So suddenly I'm talking to a lot of department heads and getting you know, some great stuff uh, from them. And the other thing is, as I said, that, you know, Edgar and Simon have always made it clear that without the people who turned up to portray zombies for a pound a day, there wouldn't be a movie. So I thought, oh, I'll start interviewing the zombies and so i would talk to one zombie and they get me put me in touch with another and you know then you know there's there's quite a few uh people who played zombies who are friends of edgar's that have gone on to be like notable film folks so joe cornish uh the uh director of attack the block and the kid who would be king is in it uh corin hardy who directed the hallow um and then the nun which was a huge hit and is now uh you know recently been working on gangs of london which is this great British gangster series. Uh, he plays a zombie. In fact, Joe and Joe and Corin play a zombie, play zombies in the same shot of the film, 
which is which is pretty incredible. So I'm interviewing them, and then I realized that the the story of how they publicized it in America, how they promoted it in America, was sort of worthy of its own chapter. So, and there were various people who helped them do that, both at Focus Films, including uh, well, there was a lot of folks at, at Focus Films, including James Seamus, who uh, was the head of Focus Films, but was also Ang Lee's sort of creative partner. So I'm talking to him, and he's recommending other people to talk to, and then I'm talking to. Greg Nicotero, who, you know, I mean, he, Greg Nicotero w- was one of the huge inspirations for the film. And as much as he worked on in the 80s, worked on a lot of the films that inspired Shaun of the Dead, including Day of the Dead. He, but, you know, he fell in love with, with Shaun of the Dead, you know, and said anything I can do to promote it. And did, w- w- it didn't really have a premiere in the States, but it had like a sort of Los Angeles premiere um, at the Arclight in Hollywood, RIP where Eli Roth turned up. Eli Roth was another sort of booster of the film and Quentin Tarantino and Greg Nicotero sort of, you know, did zombie makeups for for audience members. So what I planned, you know, having originally planned to only talk to 20 or 30 people, I wound up talking to around 70 people. And this book went from being, I guess, what I thought would be 200 pages to being like 450 pages. Although there are a lot of, you know, there are a fair amount of photographs and storyboards and and what have you. So that's it. And I think it's worth, I mean, I think it's worth the, you know, I mean, this book still could be 200 pages, but I, you know, I, I, I thought it was worthwhile. I wanted to include quotes from everybody I interviewed. I felt everybody I spoke to had, had things to say. And so I just thought, and also it was during COVID time. So, I mean, I'm sort of like, I, I don't know. You're sort of, it's not like anyone's really stopping me in any way. Uh, so I, I thought, well, you know, maybe one day there'll be another book about Shaun of the Dead, but probably not for a while. Uh, so I might as well put the whole kitchen sink into it. Although I have to say there were, there was, there were longer versions remarkably. So it's not just sort of like Stephen King in his coping days, like, you know, just writing and writing and writing. But also, I like. I really enjoyed doing it. I really enjoyed the process of doing it. I was in a somewhat bleak place when I started, and, and working on it really, you know, sort of really uh, put me straight. You you mentioned in the acknowledgments actually that it's uh, similar to Simon Pegg doing his acting and being in a happy place when the cameras start rolling. That you felt the writing of the book was a similar sort of tonic. Yeah, no, that's true. I was in a, a desperately depressed state about three years ago, and to be honest, what I should have done was was see a therapist i mean there's no you know and i'm not and i'm not basically i should have seen a therapist instead i wrote a book about Shaun of the dead and feel much better but i'm just saying that because i don't want people who might be feeling depressed to think oh all i need to do is take on some extraordinarily uh difficult writing task <laughs> and everything will be fine but yeah but i have to say you know i have to say did i leapt out of bed in them i mean i mean i was when i was doing all this i was also you know, I had a full-time job at Entertainment Weekly magazine. But the good thing is I say it's full-time. And in any given week, you know, I mean, it is a full, it is a full-time job. But, but you know, there'll be days when I'm, you know, plenty of Saturdays and Sundays when I'm working all the time. And, but on the other hand, there are, you know, days during the week when I'm not. So it is, you know, it does allow a certain flexibility. But it was such a thrill to talk to people. And, I mean, I guess I, guess I thought the story was going to be one that I knew when I started writing the book. And it was so much fun to, and a lot, because a lot of entertainment journalism, a lot of the time you're sort of recapping, you're not just recapping episodes for, you know, a lot of people do that, episodes of shows or whatever, but you're sort of recapping people's lives and, and you're sort of asking them about things they've talked a lot about before. And then, 
you ask about the new thing they're doing. So it is sort of like a fresh look at somebody, but you're not always bringing something that new to the table. And this was, I mean, I didn't know, I really didn't know half of, of what, you know, the, the story of Shaun of the Dead. And so it was so fun to, to, I would interview someone in the afternoon and then I would, you know, get up in the morning and transcribe it. And then I would sort of stick that stuff into the book. And then, you know, they maybe have referenced, they in the course of the interview had referenced somebody else or suggested I speak to somebody else uh, who I hadn't spoken to that could add, you know, another fresh layer to the story. And so I would then be, you know, trying to contact them. And um, I mean, I wrote it relatively quickly and it was, I had done a lot of research and I could argue I'd done 52 years of research by that point, <laughs> but I had done a fair amount of research and had some quotes, but really the whole thing was kind of done in a six to nine month period, which sort of seems crazy now. I can't believe the person I was a year ago was this like hardworking, really? <laughs> now I can, it seems like I can barely get out of bed some days. Uh, but it's fun. It's fun because it's a linear, it's, it's like a linear story. And so every time, yeah, you're like, well, this is okay. Most, I mean, some days I would wake up and be like, this is terrible. I can't imagine anyone's going to be interested in it. But um, yeah, most days I woke up and would be adding stuff to a story that, you know, I wasn't, didn't have to rewrite things necessarily, but would be just making this story better, which was, which was, you know, a real thrill. Yeah, it was a real pleasure to write. I talked recently to uh, Ian Nathan, and he was talking about writing his uh, Peter Jackson book. And he made the point, which I think is very good, that uh, all those books about that we love about filmmaking, like Devil's Candy, like The Final Cut, are all about these big failures. But he said, you know, when, what, what happens when you write a book about the making of a really successful film? And I, I think the point that I sort of took home from it was similar to your book in that it's a really successful film. It's a, a success story. But behind that success, there's almost just as much pain and just as much sort of like, uh, well, certainly as much hard work and drama and all these other things as there is when it's a Michael Cimino, you know, over the top disaster of a movie. Yeah, I mean, I think the difference is that the, the, when things go wrong, you suddenly have, a. If I mean, from a writing, writer's point of view, if you're lucky, you suddenly have a lot of people pointing fingers at each other. Right. You know, whereas with success, uh, people are less are less worried about, are less interested in opening old wounds. Mm. So I guess, I guess, yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, no, I know Ian. Ian, uh, Ian was actually help, very helpful in in terms of uh, helping me out with a few contacts for the book. He's a he's a great guy. Yeah, friend friend of the podcast. <laughs> well, I used to because he worked at Empire for a long time, and I worked at Empire. And the uh, I mean, really writing for Empire was my first experience about writing a, about film. Um, my first sort of like uh, my first proper set visit really was Cutthroat Island, the somewhat misbegotten uh, Gina Davis pirate vehicle uh, from the uh, from the mid nineties. Yeah, um, God, pirates of, of the Caribbean before its time, wasn't it? Yes, well, certainly before its time. I don't <laughs> <laughs> or after, possibly after its time. It was certainly not the right time to be releasing a uh, Gina Davis, Matthew Modine uh, pirate spectacular. But I was flown to uh, Malta to witness this thing, and it was like it was quite incredible. I mean. You know, uh, it's not unusual to go to a set visit and, you know, for it to be not spectacular, particularly if it's inside. But but this was a, just, a, just a mammoth production with Rennie Harlan, who was the film's director, and Gina Davis's boyfriend at the time, I think. I can't yeah, remember. They, they didn't, they, I think they even got married, didn't they? Yeah, that's why I'm slightly hesitating. Maybe they did get married. 
Um, but he was sort of overseeing, you know, this this carriage chase through, you know, sort of uh, streets in Malta. And I remember there was like 300 extras. And as soon as Rennie Harlan called cut, like what seemed like every one of them just pulled out like a packet of, of Benson Hedges or whatever and lit up <laughs> like while, sta- while standing on some, you know, sort of mound in, in, um, in, uh, in, uh, in Malta. And it's funny because you'll go on a set and quite reasonably, you know, and, and do a set visit and they'll come back. And quite reasonably, people, you know, colleagues will be like, what does it look good? Does this film look good? And I always think about going on the set of Cutthroat Island and being like, this looks amazing. I mean, this looks absolutely amazing. This is going to like, this is going to break box office records around the world. But of course, that did not, that did not uh, turn out to be the case. I had a friend who works on a film, Tony Bandera's film, called The 13th Warrior, which was sort sure, of Sure, John McTiernan, right? Exactly, yeah. And they went, the, you know, it was a pretty, I think it was a pretty difficult slog of a shoot, and they all went to the premiere, and they were all absolutely convinced this was going to be the biggest film they'd ever worked on individually. You know, they were all quite experienced as well. And they went to the premiere, and and they were just like, Oh, no, it's a piece of shit. Well, I remember interviewing, I did an oral history of Big Trouble in Little China a couple of years ago. Right, And, yeah. you know, I mean, I love John Carpenter, who doesn't love John Carpenter, but he is quite a taciturn individual in, in interviews. I mean, actually, it's funny, because he will, he will, he, he's always game to do an interview, and I have had good interviews with him. But this was not, he's not really one for looking back on, on his past glories or past box office bombs in this case, although I know, you know, it has become obviously a, you know, a lot of people love Big Trouble in Little China. But so he was a bit taciturn. But then Kurt Russell, I got on the phone. He was amazing. He was just like story after story and fantastic. And uh, he had like workmen working on his house. And and so the phone, way the phone kept on being cut off. And I would be like, ah, oh, you know, I bet he doesn't phone back. And he always phoned back. He was great. But he talked about, uh, I guess, the journalists you know, saw a preview of Big Trouble in Little China and then interviewed him. And he said all the journalists were like, wow. What's it like knowing that you're going to become a huge star after this film becomes so successful? And he said that his, he would like say, well, you know, you never know with these things. But he was like inside, he was like, yeah, this thing's going to this thing's going to just be like the biggest movie ever. Uh, and I am going to be a huge star. And of course, that it did not pan out like that. Um, although, you know, I mean, he's Kurt Russell, so. What does he care? Just thinking as well about Matthew Modine, how is it, what a strange concertinaing of time when there was a moment in history where people went, Matthew Modine is going to lead movies and he's going to be the new action adventure star. And then he's Stranger Things' dad, you know? My memory is what happened was that uh, Michael Douglas was supposed to be cast opposite Gina Davis. And then he dropped out. And I think they were in a bit of a rush to, uh, you know, to find somebody else. Although Mod- Matthew Modine was coming off, was it was not that long after Full Metal Jacket, I believe, or a few, it was only a few years after Full Metal. Yeah, Jacket. And, he, and he did Birdie. He had a, you know, he had a, a couple of, yeah, you know, a couple of really good films there. I just, yeah, yeah. No, Olive, Oliver Reed was supposed to be in Cutthroat Island, and he got fired. And I was trying to find out why. <laughs> Take a wild guess. <laughs> That's true. But this, this, well, no, it wasn't because of that. Although that might have, that his drinking might have. My memory, and this is now a long time ago, and I don't think I've ever, I'm sure I've never told this story in a public forum, and it gets a bit uh, after dark. You might want to include this in an after dark uh, section. But Matt, I was sort of bugging Matthew Modine about why Oliver Reed got fired. And my recollection is that he said that Oliver Reed had said to, and also this is basically a kid's movie. It was certainly 
marketed as a kid's movie, not right. like not an X-rated movie. But he suggested to Rennie Harlan one day that when his character met Gina Davis, that his character should like be seen masturbating in front of <laughs> Gina Davis. And like the next day, or probably later on that day, Oliver Reed was summarily fired from uh, from Cutthroat Island, and uh, yeah, so that's what I believe that's what happened. Wow, wow! I cannot remember the name of Udo Kier from a month from like interviewing him three months ago. So that's my that's my cautiousness about. about <laughs> I'm pretty sure what happened, and also it seems. It seems eminently believable, both that he would do that and and then be fired. That was such a weird period when when they they because Rennie Hallen had a real run of movies that the and it, it, they were never ever particularly good, but he was a name that would be was being conjured. He did Die he Hard. He was huge. Too. Cliffhanger, Die Hard Two. I mean, yeah, huge, huge. Uh, and he was. I mean, my experience of him was very. He was a very amenable guy, and I remember. I, I remember like he was a video village or whatever, and. It was this massive extravaganza, as I said, hundreds of extras, and he, like, took the time to chat with us about, you know, what was going on, which which I thought was, I, would, I was like, I was thinking, if I, wow, if I was ready at Harland, I'd be like, I wouldn't have the time to do this, but... Um, uh, it's true there is a lot of waiting around on film sets even if you're even if you're the guy in charge what's the best film set you've been on in terms of sort of getting a, a real insight um i i don't know about getting a real insight because they do tend to you know these things do tend to be pretty swiftly you know pretty expertly chaperoned i know he's i know uh, the director richard stanley has had some some uh, sort of issues over the past year but uh richard it was announced that richard stanley was directing an adaptation of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's *The Color Out of Space*, starring Nick Cage, and I was in where was I? I was in New York at the time, and I flew myself on my own money to go on the set of uh, in Portugal of that, so that I could see uh, Richard Stanley direct Nicolas Cage in an H.P. Lovecraft movie in like basically what seemed to be like a semi-haunted farmhouse in the middle of nowhere in Portugal and was just thrilled to be there. The same thing, actually, talking about Kurt Russell, I did the same. I flew myself across America to go on the set of um, Bone Tomahawk because if someone's going to make a, a cannibal Western starring starring Kurt Russell, that I want to be there. And that was genuinely fantastic, actually, because it was mm -hmm. at a, it was at one of these, uh, what they, it was at the Paramount Ranch, which is now burned down which was Paramount Studios sort of like ranch where they got a standing set, uh, you know, Old West set. Uh, Kurt was just telling me how he'd been on that set like 50 years previously, you know, as a child star, you know, doing some sort of Western. And, and yeah, that was just, that was just amazing. It was so hot. Um, and mm -hmm. Kurt was wearing like 17 layers of clothing and just didn't seem bothered by, bothered by any of it. He was just- well, What was, a pro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One last question that I have for you, Clark, is we already started talking about them. Maybe, maybe you mentioned one already, but uh, we'd like to have a film book recommendation for our for our listeners. So, what, what would be your film book recommendation? Ooh, well, that's a good one. Let me think. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, the obvious ones, you know, the, as I said, the Final Cut, Raging Bulls, Easy Riders. I do quite like the 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 recent book about Chinatown. Is it called The Big Knife? I, I, uh, the I'm... Big Goodbye. The Big Goodbye. There you go. Sam Watson. The Goodfellas book. I I, I by Glenn Kenny. I enjoyed. I mean, the a book I've read a lot is George is the book about George Romero called uh, The Zombies That Ate Pittsburgh, 
And it's a book that is extremely expensive to buy online now. It's, it's been out of print for me. I think it now like costs 200 pounds. And I'm not recommending that people pay 200 pounds for it. But I'm always, the number of times that I'm like, oh, I don't need to take this. I don't need, when I move, I don't need to take this book. And I'm like, God damn it. Now I have to buy this book online because it is actually essential uh, for something that I'm writing. I'm sure as soon as this ends, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I mean, um, you had Mark, you had Mark Harris on, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. His, I mean, his, I loved his, his Pictures of the Revolution book. Although, funnily enough, the, the one, the film I was most interested in was Dr. Doolittle, which is kind of a film. I mean, it is, it is, you know, part of the whole thesis, I guess, this changing of the guard. But I guess partly because I had heard, I had read a lot about the other films, Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate. And so it was, but it was just fun that Mark went such in depth on this like preposterous and stupid movie, which is like now not remembered at all, basically starring Rex Harrison as, as Dr. Doolittle and all the sort of disaster that, that fell out. And I have to say that his Mike Nichols book I'm reading and uh, well, I've read and it's, it's just exceptionally good. He's, he's, I mean, he's a former colleague of mine, former editor of mine, although I wouldn't say that, I mean, we didn't work together for that long at entertainment weekly, but he's, you know, a quite brilliant writer and, but again, I am kind of drawn more <laughs> to the Mike Nichols films that go horribly wrong, like uh, Catch-22 and that, the George C. Scott movie about dolphins. I'm sort of much more interested in that at this point than like, again, partly because I've read a lot about The Graduate and, you know, but but yeah, I, I am kind of drawn to catastrophe. In a, in a, and you're right, it hadn't really occurred to me that the that, that, that Shaun of the Dead does kind of have all like it is it, in many ways it is almost a surprise that it has a happy ending because it mm. does it does sort of it does have the makings of, of you expect oh and then you know and obviously because of the earthquake you know they all got swallowed up into the ground uh, yeah his, his, his mate couldn't act his mate yeah. that he no, lived absolutely, with was yeah, absolutely yeah. awful why did he insist on that he should have yeah, let Helen Mirren I'm, play yeah. that role. <laughs> no, quite, quite. So yeah, I'm. I mean, I guess I'm. I'm desperately trying to think of one more, you know, film book that, uh, uh, you know, because I'm trying to think of another one. But I, yeah, I. I mean, I, I mean, I guess I should say Nick and Simon's memoirs. Nick Simon, Nick Frost, and and Simon Pegg. I mean, they're they're really you know nice, uh, heartfelt um, memoirs. Although I have to say, this isn't in the book, but I know Edgar. Because Edgar talks about how, <laughs> how how he read in Simon's book. It sort of goes from, well, this is what Edgar said. He's like, well, I read Simon's book. And it went from like, oh, we made space and had a nice time. And then we made Shaun of the Dead. And we also had a nice time. And Edgar was like, <laughs> wanted to call him up and be like, and say, do you not remember the two years we spent trying to get the finance for that film? <laughs> Um, and so, I mean, Shaun of the Dead is not, my, my book is not a memoir of Edgar Wright, but I, I think there's certainly elements in there that, you know, he sort of corrected Simon's, felt that he was correcting Simon's version. And Simon, indeed, Simon's book was written before he sort of talked about his um, alcohol problems. And, and uh, I think Edgar would like Simon to write a new book, which sort of, you know, oh, he just had a thought that maybe, you know, Simon could write a follow-up that address that. That, that that would be you know another, another sort of great book so yeah. we'll see yeah but listen Clark thanks so much for uh for you know spending some time and talking about your book it's a really great read I really enjoyed it and it's going to do that thing that all 
great film books do. It's going to send me back to the film to watch it again, I think. I, I, I have to say, I, I thought there would come a point when I was writing the book that I would get sick of watching Shaun of the Dead, but it, but it never happened. It really didn't. I mean, not that I, it's not like I would get up and watch it like three times in a row. Um, and a lot of the time you're watching sort of, you know, isolated bits to, to you know, fact check what you're saying. But I, what struck me, I talked to the steady cam operator. I mean, there's two long shots near the beginning of Shaun of the Dead where Simon goes to the goes to the shop twice, which I don't know. No wonder they didn't get, I mean, it's a, they're brilliant shots, but no wonder they didn't, they found it hard to get finance if that's like the scenes that you're looking at. But, but I was talking to the steady cam operator or somebody and they were just saying how incredible it was that, that Simon was kind of creating a character just through little things that he was doing, just kind of like trying to open the can of Coke with his teeth or whatever. And um, far from putting me off watching Shaun of the Dead, it, it sort of writing the book really enriched the experience, I have to say. Yeah, I remember seeing Simon Pegg on so many things. Um, Big Train, of course, was a, a really mm. big one as well as Space. But he was even in sort of a a sitcom which wasn't great and he was the kind of Kramer character the kind of you know the the comedic crazy and he was it was so obvious that he was just trying so hard you know to 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 do something good even if if, when sometimes it was the context was great big train sometimes the context not so great it's sort of fairly run-of-the-mill sitcom you know so it was really good with Linda Bellingham, I think the sitcom was with Linda Bellingham, wasn't he? Like the 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 daughter's boyfriend. I think Julius Swallow was in it, perhaps. Maybe I'm getting my sick my '90s sitcoms and my uh, you know Oxo ads confused. But there you go. <laughs> Again, listeners, ask your fa- ask your parents and grandparents what I'm talking about. The only people listening to this are grandparents. <laughs> you talking Great. About? <laughs> Great. Fantastic. No, it's brilliant. It's been really good talking to you, Clark. Thanks so much. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I'm sorry that I was worried that because I have sort of been in a room like so many of us for the last 18 months. And so if anybody says to me, Sean of the Dead, then I just start talking and, and, and eventually, you know, uh, the computers wind down and, and I go <laughs> silent. But thank you so much for having me on. This has been this has been fantastic, and it's a genuine honor, you know, to be on a on a podcast where you have had so many uh, people that have written these fabulous books about film. So that was our conversation. Clark recommended a whole bunch of books. Nick Frost's. And Simon Pegg's memoirs were were two that he recommended. He also recommended uh, a load of books. I'm really proud of this, the fact that people have been doing this a lot recently, that a lot of people's recommended books end up being people that we've already had on the on the podcast you know Sam Wasson with the big goodbye Mark Harris has been cited a number of times by a number of writers for his um, Mike Nichols biography but also pictures from a revolution and Glenn Kenny was cited for his Goodfellas book uh, Made Men you go back and listen to some of those episodes if you haven't had the opportunity uh, they're, they're, they're really really good it's really interesting actually to go back and listen to the first episode when I had never done a podcast before, um, and I, I don't think I don't think it's necessarily the case that I've improved any, but uh, but yeah, it certainly makes for uh, an interesting listen. All that I need to do now is thank Elliot Atkins for providing the music, Ali Howard for providing the artwork, and until our next episode, please everybody take care. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.